0: Hello and welcome to The Stakes. I'm Julianne Ross, Deputy News and Politics Editor at MTV News. I'm stepping in for Holly Anderson, who is recovering, as one must do, from her time in the barren desert of the soul that was the final presidential debate in Las Vegas. We've got a really wonderful show for you this week with contributions from some people that you haven't heard on The Stakes before. Music writer Hazel Sills is going to interview New York-based electropop duo The Blow about their Woman Producer Project, an online archive of women who work on the production side of music. And I think there's just this kind of bravado with like, I'm a producer. Yeah, they, that's how they say it. I'm a producer. And it, what it means is like, I made the world that you get inside of. We'll also hear more voices from our music team when our editorial director of music, Jessica Hopper, speaks with writer Sasha Geffen about her article for MTV.com, How Do We Solve a Problem Like Swans? And speaking of trips to the desert, our podcast producer Mukta Mohan joined Holly at the debates and spoke to folks who are building a wall of their own in front of a Trump hotel, a wall of taco trucks. Before we begin, a quick warning. The first two stories you're going to hear today contain discussions of sexual violence. Whether you find these stories triggering or you're honestly just tired of hearing about shitty men doing shitty things, we'd like to encourage you to skip ahead about 20 minutes to Hazel's interview with The Blow. That's a really wonderful, positive, insightful conversation that we think you're going to love. Before we get to that, we're going to start things off this week with a report from the front lines of protest against the Republican nominee for president. On Wednesday night, Trump Tower on New York City's Fifth Avenue was beset by women with something to say about Trump's pro-pussy grabbing stance. It was the second Wednesday in a row that women took to this normally quiet street to manifest their righteous anger. The stakes went out to ask women what brought them there, a question mostly treated as completely fucking obvious by protesters.
1: I mean, I'm here just because, I mean... I don't know, we have to say Paige? It seems oh, pretty funny. rhetorical. Yeah, I'm um, <laughs> Paige. I'm here because
2: just as a rape survivor, it's horrifying to me that a sexual predator is considered a
3: legitimate presidential candidate.
0: And why are you here today? Oh, because
3: this is the most loathsome person on earth and he's running for president and bringing down our country? Well, what, do you want more? <laughs> yeah, are you the
0: kind of person that goes to protests a lot? or? No, that-
3: I just said this is the most fun I've had since the Vietnam War. <laughs>
0: Protests brought out all ages, colors, and genders, and even some (coughs) (laughs) pro-Trump counter-protesters. Similar protests took place in front of the Chicago Trump Tower, organized by Alicia Swizz, a professor at Harold Washington College and founder of Slut Talk. Alicia sat down with producer James T. Green in a local cafe to discuss the actions in Chicago, intersectionality, and how we can all be better feminists.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, because you can't grab me by the pussy, <laughs> you
5: know,
4: like, so funny. It would seem like it goes without saying, you know, or that in 2016, we don't need to be, like, contesting this sort of thing. My name is Alicia Swiz and um, I'm a part-time professor of humanities at Harold Washington College. I am a performer. I run a show called Slut Talk and Feminist Happy Hour.
1: We did want to kind of go over the big thing that seems to have been blowing up all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, literally all my timelines are blowing up over this protest that happened out here in Chicago.
4: Those Trump tapes were leaked last week in this Access Hollywood interview where he was recorded um, talking about women and basically just ignoring consent and saying, grab her by the pussy. Um, and that's been making the round. So last week in New York, some women protested, gathered and protested outside of Trump tower. And, um, when I saw that, I, you know, I saw an article about it and I reposted it on my Facebook page and said, Hey Chicago, like we're next. And because so many people posted not just women but mostly women and we're like yes I'm there hell yes you know tell me the time and so my homegirl and I a girl by the name of Lindsay Cogan we got together and we were like "Uh, okay are we going to make this happen and we were like I guess so and I was like well I have to work all weekend like when are we going to make signs (laughs) you know and we were like well it's not that hard we'll just tell people to bring their own signs all you have to do is tell people to show up and we like arbitrarily picked the date and then the national group kind of organized behind this hashtag GOP hands off me and like kind of in the same moment and, uh, was calling for Tuesday the 18th. And so that's when we made our event for us. We went out there early, like morning rush hour across from, um, here in Chicago, we have Trump, it's a hotel. And, um, I know that the bottom floors have a lot of empty space that they trying to rent out. Mm hmm you know, one thing I've been noting is I was born in 1978, you know, so I've seen these women's issues come up in every election cycle my whole life. You know, I was born into, you know, this era of like second wave feminism that was still fighting for like birth control and reproductive rights. And we still are. And now rape culture is sort of like, the sounding call for, you know, this generation and certainly, you know, like Trump is giving it a face right now and he's kind of with this quote, he's like really mobilizing us because like also high, like women love to say pussy, like men don't own that term, you know, and that's another part of the dialogue that I think is really fascinating and that people are going to have a lot of issue with and I'm already seeing is this kind of reclaiming the language. And that's a part of what I do with Slut Talk, too. So it was like, this was perfect, you know? It's like, and it sucks that he thinks this way and feels this way and acts this way. And it sucks even harder that he's a presidential nominee. I mean, for me, what does that say about our country? And it, it honestly, it's heartbreaking. You know, it is. It is. You know, I know a lot of people see Hillary as really problematic, which I'm not going to argue against, and I'm not even here to, like, promote. I'm voting for her. I'll tell you that, you know, but I'm not here to, like, promote that, and that's not, you know, like, again, not while we were there that day, you know, but... um to, for candidates to be more intersectional, you just have, like, literally, or for people to be more intersectional, you know? You just have to acknowledge that this shit exists. You just have to be like, oh, racism sucks. And guess what? I was raised in America, and I'm white, so I'm probably racist. You know, like, a fancy term we use for that is, like, complicity, right? Like, we're all a part of the thing we're trying to dismantle.
1: So how does it feel to, like, have something so intersectional as your protest now share the lines with the intersectionality of like black lives matter and their protest all sharing like the same space
4: it's like getting an academy award you know I, i it's it feels like we're winning you know it feels like we're getting somewhere you know like again like i'm not like i'm not getting paid for this you know they asked me that you know like i'm we're all kind of hustling and struggling and trying to live our our lives you know black lives matter like literally trying to live their lives like and not get killed right i'm walking around just trying not to get raped right because it's our responsibility but the black lives matter and like the black sex matters movements like the stuff that's happening in chicago has just been so inspiring um Locally and then just on the bigger picture, you know, so I I feel very privileged. I feel very lucky to be able to work with people, even just as far as like being out there on the front lines, even if we never, you know, connect in real life. Um, and I, 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 you know, I was even asked, like, what would I say to Melania Trump? And I was like, I would tell her to call me like because whatever you need, like I have so much compassion for certainly those women connected to Trump. Um, and I have like slivers of compassion for Trump, just from the like, you know, learning masculinity standpoint. But, you know, I have I said to someone else too, in, in education there's kind of the saying that like you teach to those who want to learn. And it's sort of the same thing with activism. You're giving a space for the people who need it. Like this wasn't about Trump. You know what I mean? like, he was a catalyst and that was certainly like the narrative of what we were there for. But I think most of the people there today weren't, it wasn't about actively resisting Trump as much as it was about just being like, Hey, I'm here and I exist and I'm not, I'm not going to let you talk about me this way. Anyone ever.
0: That was the newest addition to MTV News Podcast Team, producer James T. Green, speaking to Alicia Swiz of Slut Talk. You can find Alicia at wearesluttalk.com. For over two decades, Michael Dura and his band Swans have existed on the fringes of the mainstream, singing songs that lash out against capitalism and building a devoted audience in clubs around the globe. Swans exist in a musical world where the audience believes that the bands they love are just like them motivated by the same politics, disgusted by the same abuses of power. Then, in February of this year, Michael Girard was accused of raping a musical collaborator named Larkin Grimm. MTV staff writer Sasha Geffen's piece, How Do We Solve a Problem Like Swans?, looks at how this allegation has reverberated within the close confines of an underground music community. Here she speaks with MTV News Editorial Director of Music Jessica Hopper about what drove her to write the piece and what it's like to lose a band you loved.
6: Sasha, can you explain who are Swans? Swans are a rock band originally from New York City who play a very uh, noisy experimental kind of music. Um, They formed in the 80s when New York was home to a lot of noise bands. They were peers with Sonic Youth and toured with them. Um, And they have continued through the 90s and then took a hiatus in the 2000s and regrouped in 2011, I believe. And since 2012, they've been releasing albums for the past few years um, with a different lineup from the original 80s roster, um, but they have been fronted by the same singer and guitarist Michael Girard the whole time. Um, But in February of this year, Swans made headlines because their leader, Michael Girard, was accused of sexually assaulting one of his former collaborators and a woman who used to be signed to his label, Young God Records. Uh, her name is Larkin Grimm. She worked with Jura um, in, the, in the aughts. Her record came out in 2008, and that's the same year when she claims um, they had an encounter uh, that she felt was not consensual. And so one of the things
7: that was remarkable in the wake of Larkin Grimm's accusations is that Michael Girard responded
2: he
6: did. and
7: confirmed this, but says it was consensual.
6: That's right. So um he agreed that, you know, an encounter had taken place in two thousand eight. Um, the way that he said he remembered it, he said that it was completely consensual, that there was no ambiguity on his part, um, that he believed that Larkin had consented. And, you know, he he was married at the time to another woman, so he he referred to the incident as an unfortunate mistake. Um, But he said that he had apologized to all parties involved and that, you know, there was really nothing more he could do because he did not agree that he had been a perpetrator of sexual assault.
7: And so your piece isn't so much about uncovering what happened per se, but more of the nuanced reactions of Swans fans that you encountered outside their Chicago show and some that you spoke to online and just about the ways that, particularly in the last few years, we've been confronted with having to deal with some really high profile accusations towards uh, very beloved artists, directors, performers, musicians of every stripe and kind of reckoning with that. Can you talk more
6: about what made you want to get into that? What was interesting to me was that after the initial news broke and you know, the music press reported both parties statements, um, it kind of just faded away. And Swans released an album this year, and the album cycle continued... Just kind of as it was planned to con- continue in the first place. Uh, as far meaning, as, meaning,
7: like in album reviews, people weren't remarking on it, like say the way sure. they might have with the last R. Kelly record or something like
6: that. Right, exactly. Um, and most of the interviews with the band didn't really touch on it. There were a few that did, um, and a few of the reviews did did mention it as well. But the reviews, you know, they were positive, and it was sort of a footnote to most of them. Um, Swans went on a, a huge tour uh, first of north america and then of europe and as far as i could tell there were no venues that chose to cancel any any dates that they had booked um the the tour dates were announced you know a few months after the allegations came out so if there were any uh any renegotiations that occurred um i wasn't aware of them i spoke to swan's pr and they said that they had encountered no problems because of these accusations. So what I became interested in was just how people process accounts like this. You know, when someone is accused of doing something horrible, do fans stick by them? Like, how do they decide what is real about this band now? Is what re- what's real about them just the music and how it makes them feel? Does this kind of story factor into how the music makes them feel? And in some ways, this is a
7: fairly new conversation within underground music. I think it's some of it has been a sort of adjacent discussion to the larger national and, in some cases, international conversation about artists like, you know, Chris Brown or uh, R. Kelly or Roman Polanski or Bill Cosby or, you know, list goes on, um, about whether. Whether we become complicit in still uh, buying these records or going to these tours, or what is our role as a consumer? Were you surprised by the reactions you found, and can you can you talk about that a little bit about about what people were expressing to you?
6: Sure. Most people I spoke to were ambivalent. Um, they all heard of these accusations. So it wasn't a case of like, oh, they just didn't know. And many of them expressed a desire to just separate art from artists. Um, They loved the music so much that they wanted to honor that and to sort of participate in hearing the music. Um, Some people I talked to didn't really feel convinced that what Larkin said had happened had actually happened because there's no real way of... You know, you can't prove something like this. You describe an event that happened eight years ago. You say your interpretation if someone else has a different interpretation. Like there's no way to really construct that reality in like a very direct sense. It's more just where do your empathies lie? And I think um, either people align with Girard or they just decide not to really think about it. Well, it's pretty inconvenient. To being, uh, uh, you
7: know, the blind abandon of being a fan and also, yeah. uh, you know, a band that's been around for decades that people have sometimes a lot of investment in. Uh, that was sort of one of the, the the arguments from people who some of the people who weren't ambivalent who are featured in the article saying sure. that after listening to swans who have a lot of songs about abuse of power, even that this this was just it, it, it almost rang more true because of what so much of uh, Girard's work has been about in some ways.
6: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of Swan's early work in particular is about uh, violence and sort of violent power relationships under capitalism. Um, They very specifically address capitalism and religion and all these power structures that govern the world and how those power structures can turn toxic. Um, so I think a lot of people felt very uncomfortable going back and thinking about all of these, all of these songs that identified problems, uh, because when a song identifies a problem like that, you sort of place trust in the artist to be somewhat removed from it or removed enough from it to be able to critique it. And I think what people discovered is that you can't really ever get outside these power structures. Um, but I think... The idea that Girard was so just so um, actively involved with, with hurting someone in in the way that he had sang about that he had sung about in the past was just hard to swallow for some people and it it toxified their relationship with the band in a in a really unique way.
7: And one point that you make at the end is about your own sort of disenfranchisement as a Swans fan. Can you talk about
6: how that unfolded for you, and and that piece for you? Sure. Um, I haven't been able to listen to Swans since uh, since February when the news broke, and it, it's not really like a like I'm taking a political stance. Like, no, I will never listen to this band again. It's it's more just that I feel like I have to step outside of it, and I can't. I can't for them for this band in particular. Like their their music was really important to me because it does hit these very just deep notes of like human nature, I think. And into sort of, um it, I'm just afraid to dive back into that world because it is so intense. And I feel like it would be even more intense with these overtones of abuse or alleged abuse, the idea of abuse, not even. Um, so, yeah, I I just wanted to end the piece with my own perspective and my own feelings just to kind of indicate that I'm still figuring this all out too and that you know for me what's most interesting about situations like this is just how people construct the reality of an event socially and how people look to each other for cues as to what to think about something like this and so I think a lot of my feelings actually were informed by the people I spoke to Um, and so I just wanted to count myself among their numbers I think.
0: That was MTV News Editorial Director of Music, Jessica Hopper, speaking to Sasha Geffen about her article, How Do We Solve a Problem Like Swans? You can find Sasha's article on MTV.com or by following the link on our Twitter feed, at MTV Podcast. And now for some good news about a cool new project from the musical duo The Blow, a.k.a. Kayla Marisich and Melissa Dine. Started as an online archive called Woman Producer, Kayla and Melissa describe this latest project as an exploration of women as creators of sonic worlds. While a lot of people think of music producers as men, the Woman Producer Archive celebrates a long history of female producers and musicians whose work has often been overlooked. Now, The Blow have extended Woman Producer into a series of live events at a venue in Brooklyn called National Sawdust. These will include performances and talks with the likes of Zola Jesus, Nico Case, and more. Our music writer, Hazel Sills, spoke with The Blow in our NYC studio about the production power of women in music and the arts.
8: I'm sitting here today with two members of The Blow, Kayla Marisich. Hello. And Melissa Dine. Hello. Thank you both so much for taking time out of your day to come into the studio to talk about Woman Producer. Of course. It's our pleasure. So why don't you both start by telling me what led you to create the online archive woman producer?
2: Well, I guess it started when we were spending a lot of time together, kind of isolated recording. And um, we live here in New York, and we don't actually have a ton of other music recording friends. Uh, we had more of a community like that in other places we've lived in the past. So we were just really on our own and working and realizing we didn't see anybody who looked like us and didn't really feel like we had a lot of role models in that time and we'd go online to forums kind of checking about like gear questions that we had and those weren't spaces that were particularly welcoming or feminine feeling mm-hmm. like you'd run across a post that's like name the hottest keyboardist <laughs> and then there's like you know picture after picture of hot keyboardists uh. and you just wanted to find out how to like plug in your interface you know you troubleshoot a problem we were also working
5: with a lot of technology and and kind of revamping the way that we were playing music and and developing a new way of instrumentation and and we were feeling like, well, what is this like synthesis? Like, what is all of these things? And so we started um, researching the history of that and realized that there was a lot of women, there were a lot of trans people, there were a lot of gay people, and and I was like, how come I didn't know this? You know what I mean? And so we just. It was like opening Pandora's box in a way and, and realizing like, wow, since the forties, this has been real and and um
2: and it's exciting. Yeah, we were kind of shocked. And so we were like, okay, well we'll just imagine every time that we want to go find out a gear question that we're talking to all these amazing historic women <laughs> from you know the nineteen forties and the nineteen fifties. Like we found suddenly that the first piece of electronic music commissioned by the BBC ever was to this woman was by this woman, Daphne O'Ram, in nineteen fifty seven. So it's like, okay first piece of electronic music made by BBC was by a woman that's really historic that's not just incidental yeah so that's a long answer to your question yeah.
8: yeah I mean you you both write on the website that you have had trouble even finding documentation for very important prominent women like I think about someone like Delia Derbyshire who's in your archive so many of her
2: recordings for the BBC are like unreleased, mm-hmm. yeah. They had a sort of a thing about authorship. Yeah, like she was an engineer for the BBC, so that she wasn't thought of as an engineer. I mean, as a as an artist. Yeah, it's
5: kind of like in that tradition of all music world uh, politics. I think they really were artists. They had bad contracts,
2: yeah. you know, and, and didn't yeah. own their art. Like so, but yeah, I mean, there's people, you know, like Kate Bush. She is a producer. She produced Hounds of Love. That's her most huge, well-known album. And we've tried really hard to find an interview with her about production, and the information's just really scant because she's so compelling as a character. You know, I mean, there's different people. There's like D.L.A. Derbyshire wasn't a wasn't like a singer, songwriter, performer. So there's you know different reasons all along, the, all across the spectrum of why why the documentation isn't as rich as you'd wish.
8: Yeah, you know, when you find those gaps, I mean, how do you feel when you find those gaps in history?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like when we. When I know that there's not any significant interviews with Joni Mitchell about her production practice, and who knows how long she'll stay on planet Earth, I feel like I just want to run to her house right now <laughs> with a microphone and say, How did you record Jungle Line? That song is crazy sounding. And, you know, Bjork was super influenced by it. I was really influenced by it way back in years ago. And um, so it just makes us want to rush out and get people to take pictures of themselves and talk about what they're doing. And it's easy to not do. I mean, like, I recorded all this record in, like, 2002 on a two-inch tape machine at Dub Narcotic and um, Kate Records. I can't believe I did that. It was incredibly ballsy. I didn't really know how to do it. I just I was said, teach me how to press play and record and how to patch in one cable to get the sound I want. And there's no pictures of me doing that. Yeah, that note about, like,
8: getting photographic evidence <laughs> of being in a studio, it reminded me of this blog post that this young musician, Katie Bennett, she's in a band called Free Cake for Every Creature. Um, she wrote this blog post where she posted a photo of herself in her studio and just how important that is to sort of make these images of women in their studio with their gear. I mean, what is it about the image of a woman with in the studio with her gear that is so powerful for you both?
2: I think it just speaks clearly to articulate this is the woman who is the author of this sound. She's not a character in it. She's not dancing around and singing. I mean, sure, she can do that, too. But she made that world. Like Grimes talks about being approached a lot by um, people, particularly guys who want to offer to produce for her. And then her response is, the reason you like that is because I made that sound. (laughs) I made it. And I think there's just this kind of bravado with, like, I'm a producer. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they say it. I'm a producer. And what it means is, like, I made the world that you get inside of, you know? Like, and you really do get inside of a song when you listen to it or it gets inside of you. It's, like, it's a space to live inside of, you know? Like, Purple Rain, you're, like, in it. It's around you. You carry it with you. And that's a really powerful role to have, you know? So, like... Um, let's think of women. Let's name some women producers who do that. Who like whose world you're getting inside of? I mean, sure, go Grimes. It's like that you get to get inside of that bubble with her, and that is a powerful role, you know. Like, and it's funny because women they're producing all the time, you know. Like we make the people, <laughs> <laughs> we need the guys, but we make the people. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe it's sort of like, oh, you're not supposed to be able to get to do that and make these sound worlds that people live inside of. It's like too much power for <laughs> women to amass on their own. Yeah, yeah. Also, just
8: this. Uh, This idea of like gear, um, I feel like how much do you think the stereotype of, you know, computers are for boys uh, (laughs) influences this idea that women, uh, you know, when they're making electronic music or when they're making pop music, that they're not producers? Like how much do you think that influences the stereotype as a man, as the producer? I think that that is what uh, I think most people assume that. But I don't know where that
5: came from, you know, and I think that's with with asking people to take images of of themselves doing it. It's breaking that concept, you know, and I think it's just so simple. It's like that. It's just a weird story that popped up, you know what I mean? And nobody's saying it's it has to be true, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and maybe it has been true in the past and the world is changing and it's an exciting time. And I think that's why that documentation is so important. It's abstract, you know. And that legend keeps living on, you know, that there's some guy in the corner. And also, like, production is a big word. It means a lot of different things. There's there's people who are twisting the knobs to people who are really overseeing things. And I think that is something that's important to document, too. You know, and, and there's mm-hmm. production in radio. There's production in the sense of, like, engineers and mastering people. And, I mean,
2: but if you think about it, it's like, when did that start? Well, I don't know, the last 50,000 years of human culture, <laughs> mostly women have been property. And like, that's cool. It's cool that, you know, we got here to where we are. And now it just seems like we're in a moment where like, gender based limitations on any expression of gender in any field are just boring. Like, we're over it across the board. So I feel like that then when we look around and we're like, oh, wait, this isn't actually over. Like, we see e- examples of really blatant sexism. And they're like, oh, my God, that's so old fashioned. Like, then we're like, okay, well, then let's just make this thing happen. Let's make it really obvious, guys. Women producer, duh. Like, I mean, and I feel like we see like interviews with young women who are maybe like nineteen, and they're totally unfazed about being women and being producers, mm-hmm. like. They're even kind of like, oh, I find that unnecessary. And that's fantastic. Like, great. If you don't experience any expression of sexism in your life and you don't feel like there's any limitation on what you're doing because of your gender, great. Like, just run with that into the future and take the rest of us with you like, <laughs> like a sled dog. <laughs> we were just going to follow you. Um, but, I mean, I, I feel like we have experienced it even in, in our own selves, you know, kind of thinking like, oh, I wrote the song. So, um, yeah, I just need someone to make it sound really great and put it out in the world because I can't convey it myself out there. Like, I've definitely felt that myself. Yeah. Have you both experienced
8: where someone has sort of assumed that you needed help or assumed that you haven't produced your work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I <asking> obvious <laughs> question?
5: Yeah. I think, you know, what I've felt from people is, like, they kind of erase you. Like, well, who mm-hmm. did that? And you're like, is someone else standing here? <laughs> you know?
2: <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's cool because like we started we used to perform with a laptop and then we got bored of that and wanted something that sounded bigger and crazier. So we started working with all these synths and all this outboard processing gear and our, our live shows got all this gear and it's cool. It's this completely different relationship with with men. I mean women come up too, but it really has this different relationship where guys come up like during or after the show and they're just like nice like if they <laughs> actually give you this gesture of respect because we're standing there with so much gear and there's nobody else there and i think they're like uh, all right cool you guys do this i mean obviously not every guy's a sexist like a lot of people are just like cool you're a woman no big deal but it definitely gets this different response yeah
8: yeah um i mean something that's frustrating for me is i feel like a lot of the producers in the women producer archive are electronic artists or they they work with synth- synthesizers and i feel like You know, electronic music has such a diverse history of of women, house music, of people of all races and genders making dance music and electronic music. But now I feel like in the general consciousness, like EDM and which is very bro-y and has a history of sexism and like it's very masculine. uh, That is what most people think of when they think of electronic music. And I'm just curious, like, how do you think that happened? Do you think the people – is it, like, appropriation? Is it just – what do you think?
2: (laughs) It's a big question. It's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's odd because the first person who had a hit electronic record is Wendy Carlos, Mm -hmm. who was trans. And also played Beethoven.
5: Yeah. You know, on a Moog. It was – like yeah, she was playing. It was switched recording, on recording, switch like piece by piece, and and literally putting them together because the moog wouldn't stay in tune um, enough to to play
2: all the harmonies. It's they, crazy. Yeah, and she was the first person, really the most publicly out trans person in that era, in like nineteen early nineteen seventies or nineteen sixty nine. Um, and there had been there was like a conference, wasn't there, in like nineteen sixty nine? And there was three records. I can't remember what they all were, but the. Um, There were three electronic records, and the record label was like, we're going to try to push these electronic records. And they had no – they did not think that um – Wendy Carlos switched on Bach, which she recorded with Rachel Elkin. Her um, Mm -hmm. audio engineer was also a woman. Rachel Elkin, yeah, they co-produced it together. Um, They they were not like betting on that one to be the big hit, Mm -hmm. and then it just like slayed them. I mean, it was like a (laughs) mega mega hit. It was like in millions of homes across the United States, and that was like the first big electronic record. So, I mean, yeah, it's a trans woman. Like, I don't know how that switched over to being like bro territory. Also, I guess, I mean. I guess that's how
5: electronic. They introduced electronic music by using a style of music that that was popular, you know, and that more people could understand, rather than like making a totally like new music. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I I don't know about EDM. Like I feel like I feel like it is is a popular style, like in the sense that that a lot of people can understand it. You know what I mean? Like it's accessible. And I I don't that's a
8: really hard question
5: <laughs> uh, yeah I do just you think have an answer <laughs> to that
8: <laughs> I, I, it's very dark when I think about it but I yeah. just feel like I mean you talked about sort of the labor that women do and how they're always producing and it I just think that like women have to sometimes break through and invent things and then for men to be able to do it and make it I guess popular like their yeah. labor, I mean, how often like does women's labor get erased in music and art and yeah and history? So, and they were just written about
5: more when you read that history. You know, I mean, Pauline Oliveros, you know, was right next to Morton Subotnick, you know, and like all of these people that we Steve Reich and, and, and Steve Philip Glass. Reich and Philip Glass and like they all studied together. And I had never heard her name for a long time. You know, even though you've you've heard everyone else, and they're just she just like was omitted. You know, and, yeah. and now I feel like, you know, she's 84 and people she's never been busier in her life because people are finally like, oh, you were there,
8: <laughs> you know. Um, I feel like sort of feminist archives or archives of archives of women's history, feminist history is also in general relatively new, like the Brooklyn Museum's feminist museum mm-hmm. with the judy chicago dinner party Like yeah. it was started in like 2002 yeah. or something and like i think about nyu's uh riot girl library which uh-huh. has kathleen Hanna's zines in it and chris krauss's a lot work. of people's yeah yeah yeah. and so i mean just in general do you feel like f- feminist archives or like the the push to sort
2: of record women's history is also on the rise well yeah You know, that Judy Chicago um, piece, she offered it to them, and then she said, and you can have it if you display it forever. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. (laughs) So Taylor
8: Swift won her Grammy for Best Album of the Year, and uh, that was really cool, but she got on stage, and behind her were all of her producers, and they were all men. So, I I mean, when people talk about, you know, women's representation in music— do you feel like the conversation about women behind the scenes sort of gets lost because people are only focusing on performers or singers?
2: To be fair, though, to Taylor Swift, um, I haven't watched it yet, but someone just told us that she has oh, yeah. a whole video available through the Grammys site where she um, has Imogene Heap, is that how you pronounce her name? Oh, yes. Produce a song for her, yeah. and then she made a whole documentary about it. So, I mean, you know,
1: Taylor reached out
2: to this fist, one, up, on Taylor. She's, she's going for it. <laughs>
5: I also think that like there's this idea that there's this singularity in in any art like art like artistry. It's like you always want to say it's a person, you know, when actually it's a it's very collaborative. Music is extremely collaborative, and I think when when you were talking about EDM earlier, I think that that is a world where it is singular often, and so it's very ego based, mm-hmm. you know. And and I think when you Make a different genre of records. It's impossible to do it on your own. Like you just can't. Like, yeah. Um, and I think if you're not a nerd who makes music or is a nerd about music, you may not know all of the different moving parts it takes to record something.
2: Well, we just want to consume the you know. music. You
5: know, we don't have to <laughs> do yeah. all that work. You just hear the song. No, you you want, want to hear stuff. that song. <laughs>
0: yeah. That was Hazel Sills speaking with Kayla Marisage and Melissa Dine, who perform music as the Blow. Check out womanproducer.com for more about their latest project. The Trump campaign has struggled to gain the Latinx vote. This is not exactly surprising, given that Trump has infamously called Mexican immigrants drug dealers and rapists, and has made it a cornerstone of his campaign to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. At the final presidential debate on Wednesday night, he said, and I quote, We have some bad hombres here, and we're going to get them out. Things have gotten so bad that the Trump campaign's relationship with the Latinx community has become a meme. Back on Cinco de Mayo, Trump tweeted a picture of himself eating a taco bowl and captioned it, I love Hispanics. Then in September, one of his supporters went on national television to warn the country about the impending threat of taco trucks on every corner. Which actually sounds pretty good to me. This week in Nevada, several political action groups actually organized around that exact idea to mobilize the Latinx community. On Wednesday morning, they built a wall of taco trucks in front of the Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas to protest Donald Trump. And on Tuesday, a caravan of taco trucks offered food to those registering to vote. Podcast producer Mukta Mohan went to the demonstrations in Las Vegas this week. She talked to Maria Urbina of Voto
1: Latino Action Network. I think that um, young Latinos are, are similar to other young people and in, in some ways even more progressive. And Pili Tobar of Latino Victory Project. We saw
3: it as an opportunity to use these taco trucks to register the same Latino voters that Trump insulted from day one.
0: They both participated in the events and shared issues that young Latinx individuals care about and why they're so important to this election.
4: So we're in Las Vegas right now, and both of your organizations are based in Washington, D.C. What brought you out here today? Well, for us,
3: Latino Victory Project, we have several candidates here in Nevada, obviously, Ruben Keown, Catherine Cortez Masto, and at the presidential level, uh, Nevada is one of our priority states, and we have a huge number of Latinos here. So. I think it's a combination of one, the importance of the state to the fact that obviously the last presidential debate is here in Las Vegas and the opportunity of registering Latinos to vote on the last day, uh, the last day of the deadline of voter registration here in the state. And so we really saw this as an opportunity to celebrate the Latino community while using taco trucks, which uh, Trump has said, and his surrogates have said that, that that's one of the things that's at stake in this election is having taco trucks in every corner, which we completely welcome and would love to see. Uh, we saw that as an opportunity to use these taco trucks to register the same Latino voters that Trump insulted from day one. So it was a great opportunity to lift up our candidates, to send a message to Trump the day before the presidential debate, and to celebrate our accomplishments and the prosperity of our community at the same time.
1: And I would add that when you look at the dynamics of this presidential election, there's no better uh, sample race than Senator Reid's 2010 race when he ran against an extreme conservative ideologue, a Tea Partier, Sharon Engel, who made her the cornerstone of her campaign. It was attacking Latinos and immigrants. One of her first ads out the gate was to show brown people crossing, sneaking into the country underneath some fence. Right. That was Donald Trump. 1.0, 1.0, right? And we're seeing that now. And Senator Reid has said this before, and you can look at any um, any sort of studies of the 2010 race. It was because Latinos registered to vote and Latinos showed up to vote in Nevada that Senator Reid kept his job in the Senate. And I think you're going to see much of that in this presidential race as well, that Latinos who register actually vote and turn out, and they're going to turn out in record numbers this year.
4: So how do you feel about the demonstrations that happened here this week?
3: The demonstrations were great. Uh, To be honest, it was fantastic to see people energized while doing something to fight back against the hatred they've seen from Trump and from other candidates in this election cycle that fight and that pushback doesn't have to look negative. It doesn't have to be a drag. It can be a celebration of who you are. We had uh, dozens of taco trucks throughout the city registering people to vote. We had a taco truck wall outside of the Trump Hotel today and hundreds of people that showed up um, to both events uh, basically calling on respect and dignity and saying that they're going to participate. So if the attendance and the energy at these two events are any indication of how the elections are going to go, I think Donald Trump and the Republican Party are in some serious trouble because Latinos are ready to come out and ready to hold them accountable for what they've said, but also for what they've done and the votes that they've taken against us in the past.
1: I think that's right. Uh, Standing with Nevada's workers today was an extremely powerful moment because it was a real moment of solidarity and movement building. Um, And I think young Latinos and Latinos today and immigrant families who showed up and demanded respect have to take that same energy to the polls. And here in Nevada, early voting starts on Saturday. So it's critical that just in the same way that the families are demonstrating and, and holding to task individuals who make us feel like less than American, they have to do that as well um, by turning out in early vote um, and also challenging anyone who's trying to intimidate them at the polls for making them feel less than American.
4: So why is activating the Latino population to vote so important?
1: So if you look at presidential races, the last two, for example, you look at Latinos who registered and turned out at a rate of 82% whites who were voted turned out at a rate, I want to say, of 87%. So in fact, it pushes back against this notion that Latinos don't participate. Latinos participate when their communities are invested in, when you're asking them to register. It may take a few tries because most Latinos are aging into the electorate for the first time, right? They're first-time voters, they're young people who just turned 18, and many of them, many of whom are first- to be in their families to vote. And so when you think about being the first person to go to college in your family, think about some of the um, education issues, like you don't know how to navigate that system. And, and similarly, voting is, is no different. And so we think it's really important that whether it's a candidate, whether it's a party, or whether it's nonprofit organizations who do community building, we have to be asking Latinos to register in, in, in really robust ways.
4: So what are some of the issues that you care about and that you want uh, our candidates to be addressing?
1: When you look at young Latinos, you see largely that young Latinos are demanding intersectionality in how, not just how they identify culturally, but surely how they identify politically. Um, so as much as immigrant rights and, and really achieving a dignified immigration reform package is a huge part of all of our families because of our mixed status families, um, because of how uh, embedded we are to each other's families, even if it doesn't directly impact Your own family we also know that young latinos care deeply about the rights of their bodies and how they're treated and and their health care choices they care deeply about climate change and making sure that we leave an environment and a world that is going to be there for future generations and we care deeply about criminal justice and and racial equity issues we we support deeply the black lives matter movement and, and also because we know that our young latino brothers and our brown brothers also face really high levels of racial profiling. Um, and even worse, our immigrant Brown brothers who are profiled on so many different fronts. And so I think in terms of the young people that we work with, young Latinos that we work with, immigration is certainly a major mobilizer, but there are a whole host of progressive issues um, in which they see themselves. And, and we definitely have to mention college affordability for so many of our families who are still trying really hard to, to make their way into the middle class and, and, and help their families, right? When you look at We did a survey about young Latinas and one of the highest intensity issues they had was paid family leave. And the pollsters were a little taken aback by that because they said, I wouldn't have thought that a young Latino would care so much about paid family leave. But when you think of young Latinos, they're the leaders in their family, right? You're the ones that translate your parents' medical information, insurance information. You call when they're sick. And so not only do they care because they might be young parents and they need family paid leave, but they also might care because they might be the one helping their parents navigate um, through getting paid time off. So I think that um, young Latinos are are similar to other young people and in, in some ways even more progressive. Look, immigration is an issue that gets to the core of our culture, the core
3: of our heritage, and just basically who we are and how we define ourselves and our families. That's part of why it's become also such a big issue in this presidential election because it really is an attack to your identity. As an immigrant, as a Latino, as a Mexican, as a Central American, whatever it is, it hits at that. But the reality is that for young Latinos and for Latinos in general, um, we need to define what being a progressive Latino is. And that's what people are looking for. They're looking for what does it mean to elect this candidate versus the other? Why should I vote for Hillary Clinton aside for the fact that Donald Trump is terrible? And our way of explaining that to them has been, you know, Hillary stands for higher wages, for a cleaner environment, cleaner air and water. We actually are having a conversation about racial justice and discrimination. So when you look at candidates, You know, don't just look at the rhetoric, look at actually what it is that they're saying and how that's going to impact your life. But this campaign cycle in particular, I think, has been incredibly different in the sense that people are being attacked because of their identity and their heritage. And that has become the front and center issue rather than what it is that Latinos and immigrants and and other groups of people want to see in terms of policies.
4: Well, thank you both so much
0: for
1: joining me. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was Mukta Mohan in conversation with Maria Urbina of Vota Latino Action Network and Pili Tovar of Latino Victory Project in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. I'm Julianne Ross filling in for Holly Anderson. Before we go, we'd like to give a special thanks to MTV intern Marissa Cantor for helping us gather tape for our piece on the Pussy Power protest this week. Thanks, Marissa. From all of us here at The Stakes, thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please do us a favor and leave a rating or a comment on iTunes or wherever else you subscribe. It helps other people find us, and honestly, it just makes us feel good. Thanks again, and see you next week.
4: This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Kitano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasha Mahilovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.